Welcome to EIS Navigator, the podcast for UK venture capital. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. Although most venture capital investors try to be objective in their investing, much of it remains subjective. Richard Blakesley, founder and CEO of VentureCube, is trying to change that by rating companies. We had such a great conversation that we split it into two episodes. In this one, we talk about how he rates companies and quantifies things that might seem to be subjective, as well as giving founders feedback and where they might do better in preparing for fundraising. If you join the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe through all good podcast services or following the link in the show notes. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So welcome to the podcast, Richard. Thank you very much. As usual, we'd like to start by getting to know a little bit more about you. Can you tell us how you became involved with Venture Capital? My history in venture capital is, I think, a little bit uh, of a wiggly line rather than a straight line. It stems originally from my time in investment banking. So I was an M&A guy uh, doing large, complex, global mergers and acquisitions deals in the 90s and early 2000s. Um, When that became a bad thing to do, I left the banking world and landed in startup land and actually my first forays into the world of startups and venture capital were with the equivalent of SPACs on the AIM market in 2004-56 which was effectively the equivalent of the venture capital market of today or the precursor of bits of the venture capital market of today I suppose. And it's been a fairly continuous journey since then either on the startup side or on the investment side, effectively over the last 20 years. And you're now with VentureCube, so it's a relatively new name out there. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what VentureCube is and does? It's a very new name out there. So VentureCube is a newly formed business, which is designed to filter and screen deal flow for organizations who might be accelerators, they might be venture capital funds, they might be public sector organizations who see a lot of volume of startup deal flow that they need to screen. And they'll want to screen it for fit. Does that startup meet their investment criteria? And also for quality. So effectively what we're doing is we're saying you've had a thousand applications hit your website these are the ones that are actually worth your while focusing on. So it's a filtering out process, not intended to step on the toes of the uh, VC process, designed really more as a resource optimization tool. Uh, and that's based on a rating model. So a model that I've been working on for the last decade to rate startups according to their likely outcomes. Uh, in a systematic and mathematical way to try and create a bias-free framework for assessing early-stage businesses. So uh, I really want to dig into this sort of scoring thing today, and I just find out sort of you know how how it works, and because you know I'm sure listeners are already thinking, oh yes, that sounds great in a way, but. It's also obviously not that easy in some some ways as well. So I, th- I think we'll start with the obvious question in the sense of what are you really scoring? The 
concept that we're scoring is investability. Now, that's the, the propensity for a company to be successful in fundraising. And that's really only because uh, there's a clear linkage between investability and ongoing success. Investability is a relatively near-term measure so that you can uh, spot and measure outcomes. So if we rate a company today, we can then have a look at it in a year's time and see if it was successful in its fundraising endeavours. And that gives us a guide as to the accuracy of the rating and um, its efficacy as a signalling tool. So presumably over the past decade, you have had a chance to do that over you know, several, several iterations of, of this process. Uh, yes, and this is obviously uh, through work with various previous organisations I've been involved with and principally Capital Pilot, which was the business that uh, I was working with before this. And uh, the exciting thing is actually that over that time period, and it does take a while, as you point out, to go through an entire cycle, we've been able to identify a very strong correlation uh, between this type of a rating system and the actual outcomes. And VentureCube's created actually a new rating system from scratch in the last couple of months, but it revolves around the same principles as we've used historically uh, with Capital Pilot and is driven by the same focus on signaling that future potential outcome. And to put some numbers on that, what we saw historically in Capital Pilot was that companies that achieved a high rating had a very high likelihood of survival, 80% chance of survival. They had a very high probability of completing their planned fundraising. And also in terms of their average value increase, uh, and this is looking at a portfolio of companies that were rated between 2018 and 2021, those businesses on average increased in value by 3.3 times. So actually, we were creating uh, a signal that did actually have some clear correlation with value-creating outcomes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all those sound very quite impressive. When you say survivability, survivability for how long? Was that sort of a few months? years so that was looking from mid 2023 at companies that had been rated between 2018 and 2021 okay so obviously for that measure you want a gap because there's no point measuring on july the 1st 2023 the survivability of a company that was rated the day before and uh, so yes that was that was effectively companies rated over the three-year period with a two-year gap until the point of that survival measurement and yes, you could argue that that was a particularly good time for startups and for fundraising, um, but evidence is that that was actually consistent throughout that period. And when you talk about companies, are these uh, sort of very early, sort of seed, pre-seed, or are these sort of Series A, B sort of companies? It's early stage, and I think there's... There's so much conversation in the marketplace about funding gaps mm-hmm. and where the funding gap is. Everybody and solves this everywhere. <laughs> everybody. Well, guess what? There is a funding gap, and it starts at inception. 
mm-hmm. and it finishes pretty close to exit. Yeah, in my view, <laughs> uh, it's a funding gap. But if there's one place where there is a particular inefficiency or lack of transparency in the marketplace, it's pre-seed and seed. Mm-hmm. And that's because there's so little data available about the companies themselves because they're such early stage businesses. They don't have three years of financial track record. They don't have revenues in many cases. And the challenge, and it was a fairly significant challenge, which I set myself a decade ago, is to see if we could create a rating system that could put a number uh, on these businesses that would represent their success potential. Easy to do if you're... Moody's or S&P assessing a FTSE 100 company with a plethora of data that exists about that business, actually much more complex if you're dealing in a marketplace which is driven by supposition, subjectivity, and and judgment as opposed to um, fact. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's particularly true, as you said, the pre-seed market. I mean, Series A, you at least have some revenue. You've got some sort of signs of previous growth, um, and you can debate how good they are. Um, and how much there is, but at least there's something where it's a pre-seed kind of struggling. And, and, and I guess the, the natural question to follow on to that is, from, from your sort of assessments, what factors are really the ones that matter? There's, there's, there's two sides to this. And just going back to your previous comment, uh, yes, you're absolutely right. But one of the but why focus on this really difficult area? There must be easier things to do in life, right? <laughs> we all like challenges. <laughs> We all like challenges. Uh, the answer is because it's so important for us to get that base layer of the pyramid as big and as broad as possible. So the more companies that we can get funded at pre-seed and seed stage, the more companies there are to fund at series A, B, and C. And that's great economically. That's great socially. Uh, it's great all around. So that's, that's the rationale for it. Now, I actually had a conversation on this earlier on today with somebody who said, well, everybody knows that team is the most important thing when you're evaluating a pre-seed business. And my response was, yes. And if I had this same conversation with five other people, I would get three responses about what the most important things are at pre-seed and seed stage judgment when it comes to evaluation. One of them is team, for sure. One of them is the attractiveness of the target market and attractiveness has a number of different sub-factors to it. And one is about the business model and whether that business model is differentiated, appropriate, risky or not. Now, essentially what we're measuring is risk-reward. Yeah. Where's the reward? Where's the risk? Can this company become very big and valuable? And what are the risks associated with it? Are they huge or just relatively huge because of course at pre-seed everything is a relatively huge risk the majority of companies will fail um, so ultimately what we're looking at and this isn't the rocket science piece of the venture cued model by the way because essentially what we're doing is to look at all of the factors that any investor is going to be interested in finding out about just finding a more systematic and numerical way of assessing those factors. Marketplace, business model, uh, the ability of the company to become large, uh, and 
that whole team factor as well. So those are those are the core elements, really. And as you mentioned earlier, it seems kind of obvious that market you can to some extent quantify. Um, you know that you know, you don't need to, depending on what it is, um, you can go and statista or whatever, or, or just Google, and, and you probably get some sort of market. Whether that's how relevant that market is is, is always debatable, but you'll, you'll you probably get some sort of at least idea that there's a market out there. Management and business model do not strike me as things that you can naturally quantify, um, or at least quantify very easily. How do you say, well, okay, we're scoring management expertise. How do you actually put that into a number? The methodology is about taking a really knotty problem like that and seeing how much we can break it down. And for something like how good is the team, let's start thinking about how the process of assessment happens in real life today. The investor has received some sort of communication from a startup. They've looked at some initial materials. They've decided that that's worth a meeting. They meet with the founder or the founder team. And you have this um, human experience. And that human experience, the quality of that human experience, the degree to which there's a real sense of um, coming together uh, will be a significant determinant of whether that discussion about potential investment continues or not. That's the typical you know, two people meet 17 seconds, you've formed your opinion as to whether that person's a good person or a bad person. Uh, now, great, we understand that's how a lot of human relationships and business relationships are created, but it ain't necessarily very fair and it ain't necessarily very bias free. Job interviews are demonstrably not great ways of finding the right person. Correct. Um, Harvard Business Review, for example, this goes back a couple of years, did some really interesting work around how female applicants get different questions from interviewers than male. Uh, open questions versus closed questions. So there's lots of evidence, as you say, that the interview process can be a limiting factor uh, in, in making good decisions. However, there are plenty of ways in which you can get information about a team that don't involve face-to-face, potentially bias-driven um, engagements. Basic things, history. So there are certain factors that most investors will look at, which might mean um, a prior startup experience. That might be quite important. Domain experience, does this person or do these people have a really good grasp of the industry into which they're looking to sell their product or service? Factors such as uh, operational capability. Do you have somebody who is technically proficient and somebody who is sales proficient as part of that team? Maybe not at the very earliest stages, but is there evidence at least of a plan? Uh, And then there's another level, which is to say, within all of the materials that are shared during an investment process, what can you spot that might be a good signal of a good team versus a bad team? And I'm a bit of a financial modeling geek. One of the things I always found fascinating is what you can learn from the financial forecast model. 
Now, lots of people go, oh, well, it's all a load of nonsense and you can put a set of projections together for, every, for anything. Absolutely right. But it not it interesting to see how you put together that set of projections yes. and what uh, the factors are that you assume to build up your revenue or your cost base and so on and so forth. There's loads of ways in which you can, if you like, passively derive information about team and team potential other than by interviewing people. And that's an ongoing process which we'll continue to work on indefinitely uh, and a real area of interest for me. Yeah, it, it, it seems to me that there's a challenge in there. You talk about, say, analyzing that financial model. If you're presented with a typical pitch deck, it's got a model in there. It may list, if you're lucky, a couple of assumptions at the bottom, you know, or, or whatever. But really, the, the, the pitch doesn't tell you how the model was derived. No, it may not. And so that's why actually the financial model itself is interesting in that uh, we're, we're, we're in a very different world all of a sudden now, though, aren't we, where many people will, put, will use um, third-party templates to build their financial forecast models because, let's face it, why should an individual startup founder know how to build a complex Excel spreadsheet? That's just another skill that they shouldn't necessarily be expected to have. Uh, and at the same time, you can generate a pitch deck on AI. So trying to extract these human relevant factors from materials that might not have been put together by those humans themselves is quite complex. But there's something about diligence, credibility, ambition, focus, attention to detail, and aspects like that, which will uh, give some kind of a guide as a proxy for what I would regard as being a more flawed process, which is taking somebody for a coffee and deciding if you like them or not. How do you actually assess all those different... So you've got the financial model. How do you assess the attention to detail without interviewing the management? If you've got a financial model which has flaws in it, typos in it, um, obvious errors of logic then you can uh, take something away from that. And if the expectation is that your founder has uh, put a lot of effort into trying to create a set of materials to uh, bring forward to an investor, the expectation is that they will have taken due care to put together something that is uh, credible and tells the right story. Here's an example. I've seen so many forecasts where you look at the growth that's projected over five years or whatever, and you say, yeah, well, that's great, but actually that's not the sort of growth that an early stage investor requires to offset the potential risk of investing in an early stage business. Oh, no, 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 well, I've been conservative. Well, that's not useful uh, because if, your conservatism has created something which is not a good fit for the investor, then it's a waste of everybody's time. So the idea here is if I want to go and raise investment as a founder, I need to understand what the investor's looking for. and I need to present something which meets that investor's requirements. We've all done this thing, by the way. It's one of my boring analogies here. We've all done that thing of going into the shoe shop and you say, have you got this pair of shoes in the size 10? 
and they come back and say, no, but we've got them in a size nine. That's not useful <laughs> because I'm a size 10. So similarly, why would you put in front of an investor a set of forecasts which don't meet the uh, value growth expectations of the typical investor? Yeah, and I think that illustrates a lack of understanding as well. If you're saying I'm being conservative and going out a bunch of people who you know, who by instinct, their first thing they're going to do is discount or reduce it, the things because they're expecting the founders to be over optimistic, then you've got that mismatch that people will inherently, as you say, kind of fail that process. Well, this is one of the spin off benefits of a rating system. Because if the rating system, as far as VentureCube is concerned, is largely about helping investors to filter and screen their incoming deal flow, then it's equally beneficial to the founder in giving them a benchmark of what good looks like. Yeah. And yeah. that's a really important element because the marketplace suffers from a lack of transparency even with all the plethora of content that's out there about how to go about fundraising, it's not typically of great quality, that content. And it's not easy for a first-time fundraising founder to really dial into what's expected of them. So if there's a benchmark out there that they can stress and test themselves against before they hit the fundraising market, then that's a potentially huge benefit as well. And everybody knows where they stand then. Yeah, I, I think it's always a challenge. I mean, not just for fundraising, but for a lot of these things where it's very easy to find generic advice on a topic. But how that applies to your business specifically is not necessarily obvious, right? at least not, not, not to begin with, and not if, you've, if you're inexperienced with it. Correct. And I think often... Uh, a lot of the advice about how to fundraise actually comes from the investor side and is therefore not about how to fundraise, but how to be fundraised. <laughs> this is what I want is different from this is what you should do. And not surprisingly, there's less content about this is what you should do. So, so did you have any examples where that might be... Not, not so much a conflict, but whether those two things may, might not correspond. I think very often the investor side will be driven by their own requirements as opposed to a more generic set of recommendations about how the founder should behave. So as an investor, uh, I want companies that look like this because that's what I invest in. And this is how my particular business assesses those companies uh, and what specifically we're looking for. And that's a very different thing from explaining to the market of founders at large what exactly their proposition needs to be. And here's another little area of problem in the marketplace, if you like. There's so much focus on the pitch rather than the underlying proposition. Lots of services out there, some of them actually very good, which help founders to perfect their pitch deck. 
for their oral presentation of their business. Uh, the 30 second version, the three minute version, the five minute version or whatever else it might be. And in fact, there's not a huge amount of evidence that standing up on a stage and pitching your business is actually likely to generate any meaningful demand. That's, if you like, the sort of the startup theatre, as opposed to, uh, that's the performance art, as opposed to the reality of finding a way into the office of a potential investor, sitting down with them one-to-one and explaining your story and dialoguing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems to me that, that, there, that there is something of a correlation, I think, particularly in sort of B2B sort of businesses where a company that, in a sense, can sell itself to investors probably has the capacity to be able to sell its product to customers. So there's an overlapping skill set there. Um, So I I think think it does help a little bit, but yeah, it's it's, it's obviously not a perfect correlation. And let's not forget that... There are all sorts of founders who might, first of all, they might not be the salesperson. Yeah, that's true. They might not have the salesperson yet. Uh, They may be the sort of person for whom standing up on a stage and presenting is a very difficult experience. Mm -hmm. Um, But one of them may be great. So um, it is a, a crude weapon. And... Again, if you can look through either the presentation physically or the presentation on paper to the underlying proposition somehow and make this more systematic judgment of the proposition based on some more mathematical formulae, that's fairer, that's more efficient, that builds transparency into the marketplace between the investor and the investee and everybody can actually learn from that process. And founders can become better at fundraising. More founders can get funding. And then we've got that nice big base layer of the pyramid growing because we've got more people overcoming the overcomable faults in their presentations and propositions to ensure that everybody's maximizing their success potential. So how might founders get sort of feedback from this process? Because ultimately, you produce a rating. Um, I, I'm not sure it's gold, bronze, silver, bronze, or ABCs or whatever, whatever, whatever scale you use. Just saying to a founder, we're actually you're a, a C rather than A, is, is helpful. But at the same time, presumably you need to say, well, actually, you fall short in this area and this area and this area is quite good. Um, so presumably you're breaking down that s- score a bit more to give the founder proper feedback. There's, a, there's an evolution here in our business model. So initially, the dashboard that we provide to our investor client uh, benchmarks all of the businesses that have been rated. It shows the company, it shows the rating, it shows the various different breakdowns of that rating. And will trigger, because this is a really important factor, I think, that we've touched on, will trigger a response to the applicant founder to say, in a small percentage of cases, you've been successful and we'd now like to talk to you, or in the majority of cases, you've not been successful and this is the reason. Uh, 
Less so now, but it is still an issue. Many founders spend lots and lots of time applying to potential investors and never hear a word back. Not even often an acknowledgement that they've applied. Well, I think that's just rude personally. That's sad. Um, So if we can go well beyond that and just say to a founder, for example, how important would this be? You're... You've not, we're not going to take you forward in this process because you're not a good fit. You don't fit our investment criteria. That's really important for the founder. Oh, it's not because there's something wrong with me. It's because it's not a good match. Great. And then furthermore, uh, if there's a, um, some sort of an issue around quality, then a very simple um, outline of what that quality problem is can be sent back to the founder. So we found specific issues in this or that part of your business model, which we would suggest you might want to go and take a look at. Soft, not over um, negative, but uh, this was the output, this was the reason. And over time, we can expand that and provide more feedback. One really, really important thing, uh, ratings have to be private. So obviously the venture cube client is the investor and the investor pays for the service, but we don't have any intention of ever seeing great big long lists published in the marketplace of you know, good companies and bad companies. That serves nobody's uh, purpose. This is more about ensuring transparency and making sure that there's some form of communication about the reason behind the decision, which frankly we would see as common sense and Curtis. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think ultimately, as you say, that should create a better market overall because if founders are more more better informed or understand what people are looking for or the feedback may help them produce better companies, which is ultimately what everybody actually wants, then that's, that's got to be good. I, I think one question that naturally springs to mind is that I hear stories about a wide range of founders where you get the founder who is grateful for every little feedback and perhaps takes, maybe sometimes you get one to two cents if you take everything on board too easily. And you get others who are just like, I know everything, I don't get the feedback. Presumably you see a wide range of receptiveness among founders to this feedback. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Not always happy, Mm -hmm. clearly and more or less receptive to commentary. There's even been a thought at some point in my mind as to whether or not we should be rating the response to the rating. (laughs) Uh, Coachability is quite an important human factor, right? So the ability to understand, to learn, and to respond to input. Yeah, and it's something I hear a lot of managers say as part of the diligence process. They want someone who's willing to be mentored, coached, whatever. So, uh, so if one of the things that we're doing is we're capturing a signal through feedback as to whether or not that founder appears to be coachable, uh, that could be an interesting sideline for some point in the future. Uh, in the meantime, uh, yes, absolutely, we get varying responses. And actually, one of the things that's been most encouraging in all of the history of doing this ratings work is that it's typically those founders who've got less experience, less network, come from those underrepresented sectors of the marketplace 
whether by gender, ethnicity, region, business model, or whatever else. It's that group that tends to be most grateful for the feedback because it's more important to them. Because mm-hmm. they're not getting it from anybody else or they're, they're not part of a market environment where they get it. And it tends to be the people who have network experience, more ability to get their way into the right rooms to have the right conversations. That group tends, and this is all averages and um, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a bit crude, but that group tends to be the group that um, responds less favorably to the feedback that they get. Yeah, because they, they, they feel that being in the market, they do kind of know it all a little bit. Correct. Yeah, correct. So in terms of, you know, if, if you're seeing a lot of companies, you must see a lot of sort of mistakes or issues. That, you know, are there any things that you, you know, giving hints to founders out there, are there any things you see that you see repeatedly happening or founders repeatedly doing or mistakes that they're repeatedly making? Here's a huge ambition venture cubed which is the ability statistically to assess and provide feedback to the market in general on exactly these points so of the x thousand companies assessed this percentage demonstrated this or that quality fault issue weakness strength there are a few things that stand out from the overall decade of experience here. One of them is the definition of the forward plan. So what are you going to be using your funding for? And precision around that partly goes back to this you know, how good is the team issue? So if you've got a really good, it's not, oh, well, um, isn't this what startups are supposed to do? Startups are supposed to go and raise money from VCs and that's the badge of honor. Um, tick the box and on to the next phase and I've, I've completed that, that stage of the journey. No, 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 it's about really why do you need this money? What are you going to do with it? And what is the business going to look like once you've spent that money? And why is that future business going to be X times more valuable than this current business. So it's that joined up thinking around the fundraise. That's one specific area of weakness. And the other somewhat related is around uh, evidence of demand for the product or service. Traction. Traction is not a word I particularly like. It's one of those that gets banded around sometimes a little bit as an excuse or saying no, oh, well, you didn't have enough traction, you're too early, or whatever else. These are the, um, the sorts of phrases that come out quite frequently. But if we think about it as a measure of the uh, demand for your product or service relative to your stage of development, then that's obviously pretty critical. So you're a very, very early stage business, at least let your potential investor know that somebody somewhere says that what you're doing is quite good and they'd buy it when, as and when it's available. Mm-hmm. So that's, yeah. So, so as you say, pre-seed companies probably will have no sales or almost no sales. So is that, so 
you want to them say, right, we've gone out, we found potential customers, we spoke to these potential customers, and they say, yeah, we like that. Is that simply enough, or do you, or do you want something that's a bit better? Yeah, so I think it, it'll, it'll depend on the type of business. Uh-huh. So there was one business that we saw recently where their traction was a partnership with a distribution organization. So they had a distribution channel that said, we think we can sell X per year of these. And once you've got it, we will distribute it. Um, For a consumer-focused digital service, it might be how many people have you got uh, on a waiting list that you've captured through your website. Um, So it'll depend on the type of business, but it's whatever you can get and demonstrating that you haven't just spent your time in the garage creating something that you think is great, but that you've actually been out into the marketplace and determined that other people want it too is quite an important thing that people do tend to miss. And it's, again, these aren't sort of derogatory commentaries. These are simply things that statistically come up time and again as being areas of weakness. And the more people know that that's a typical area of weakness, the more that they can focus on making sure that they don't fall into that trap. Yeah, it's something that seems to have cropped up several times on this podcast over the last sort of uh, a few months, where we've had this idea that's been floating around the market for a while. Now, it's very easy to set up a website, set up um, a landing page, and basically saying, we've got this product, ba-bum. You know, and 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 you know whether, whether you know you may not have to say it's ready and we could order it, but you know just having something expressing interest, and it's a relatively easy thing to do now. Websites cost very little. Even a little bit of going to Facebook or Google to advertise that doesn't cost necessarily a huge amount of money. But very few people seem to do it. And and is that a signal? I suspect it might be a signal. Uh, if you're the sort of founder that's done everything possible to validate, then that suggests something about you and about your proposition. It's that risk side of the equation. That's a risk reducer. And the reward side is, from the investor's side, that they can be reasonably comfortable that if that founder has been to uh, every length to ensure that they've validated their proposition, there's a relatively decent chance of them being more successful than the founder that hasn't. So one thing that really intrigues me about this, you you, you came across, or not came across, but yeah, you sort of outlined three areas at the outset about sort of um, basically about management and about the market and kind of um, sort of the business model. Business model. It seems to me a lot of the time that we, you know, perfection all through these areas is certainly not going to be as likely. Uh, and presumably one will be strong and quite often one, one, one will be weak and one might be somewhere in the middle or something like that. So, you know, I, for, to get an A rating, are you looking for something strong in every area or do you sort of, if they're not strong, how do you determine the weights? Do you say, well, actually they're really strong in management. We know management can compensate, you know, they'll, they'll find the market even if the market they're saying isn't right. Or, or you know, how, how, do, how do you sort of determine the weights? What's important? This is tunable for each investor client. So 
some people will say, well, I just want to see the top 5% of applicants. Others will say, no, 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 it's really important to my business and to my learning process as an investor to see more than that. And obviously, everybody's got access to as much as they want. Uh, there's information provided through our dashboard on every company that's applied. Uh, in order to get to the level that I would regard as meeting the average investor's investability hurdle, you can't really have a substantial area of weakness. You need to be at least okay across the board. And if you're only okay across the board in all categories, then you're still not going to be in that investable category. So at least okay with some highlights. Uh, and again, we talk about this being, it's a numerical process, it's a systematic process, it's a highly automated process. And those are all good things, but actually what we're not looking for is some decimal point precision. What we're looking for is illusory in a marketplace where the reasons for success and failure are random in many cases and not predictable in most cases. How on earth would you be able to say this company has got a 93.4% probability of? In aggregate, lots of companies together, absolutely you can do that, but individual book companies, you absolutely can't. And there's a topic to, to, to get onto. But good enough is really what we're aiming at. This is a initially a, an efficiency tool and a systematic fair evaluation tool to ensure that every applicant gets a similar initial treatment and that a filtered group of applicants is presented to the investor team for them to focus the right amount of time on. Uh, it's almost a filtering out rather than a filtering in. We're not saying these are the companies that you must take a close look at. We're saying those are the companies that you really shouldn't spend too much time on because they don't fit your criteria or they have fundamental flaws. So you mentioned about you know, assessing whether a company you know, a company is investable or not. How, ma how many of the companies you see do you would classify as investable? And I've got a second full-on question to come with this. Yes, it's um, it's it's fascinating. It's it runs at, and this is going back through history, around about eight percent. Now. The interesting thing is that the average investor probably invests in half a percent or less of the businesses that apply to them. And there's a bit of a, I had this exact same conversation earlier on today. There's this fundamental misconception. Uh, this investor said to me, well, you know, less than 1% of companies are any good. No, 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 no less than 1% of the companies that apply to you are any good to you. And there's the difference. 
8% of companies are good to someone. And that's a really important thing. Yeah. So this, this, is, this is something that it always intrigues me because I see a lot of fund managers and typically they'll say, yeah, we get 1,000 to 2,000 approaches a year. That's this kind of ballpark that most managers talk about. Some do a bit more, some do a bit less, but that, that yeah, that's the ballpark. And they'll invest in less than 10. So, you know, 10, 10 out of 1,000 or 10 out of 2,000, that's half to 1%. Um, and, and in some cases, they're doing less because they're doing follow-ons and whatever. But as you say, that's about criteria. And certainly, you know, I know, I know there's funding index out there that say there's all these companies looking for money. Therefore, there's a shortage of money. But that's just people who say, I want money. It doesn't say, I'm a good company to be invested or I deserve investment. So you say that 8, 8% is... So that's eight percent that people have invested in. No, that's eight percent of the companies that ought to be investable. That theoretically, there's an investor out there for, if there were enough money. <laughs> so of that eight percent, you know, if you're saying, well, half percent one place, and and you know, all these fund managers are seeing overlapping, but not necessarily entirely overlapping sort of sets of of, of these things. Of that 8%, how many do you think are actually getting funding? If we run the numbers, and these don't, they don't correlate exactly um, to the 8%, half percent that we've just been through, there are about 40,000 high-growth startups created in the UK each year. That's a bit of an estimate, but it comes from ONS data and is a subset of the something like 700,000 companies of any kind that get registered in the UK per year. So just under 10%. And, and from what both have said, I think, I think that's the ballpark of both Bo as well. What that suggests is that at any one time, you've got, say, three years worth of companies who are looking to raise money. And that might be the same company raising money twice during that three-year period. It might be that there are more than three years' worth of companies because some will have slow starts because they have long research-intensive business models and so forth. But if we say that there are 100,000-plus companies at any one time that are theoretically looking for funding, which is plus or minus three years' worth of startups, and if we know that at pre-seed and seed there are two to two and a half thousand investments completed per year, then there's roughly a four times shortfall in the amount of actual fundraisers. It should be that of those eight of those hundred thousand companies, eight percent, eight thousand are getting funded. In fact, only two thousand are. That is a big gap, but it's a phenomenally exciting gap. And it's actually the gap here. Let's just disappear down a rabbit hole for a second. It's the gap that the whole pension reform conversation as it relates to investment in private assets could have a meaningful difference in uh, fixing. Because imagine the impact on the economy if four times as many early stage startups were invested in as currently happens today. Four times as many at pre-seed seed stage. You'd imagine, therefore, four times as many at Series A four times as many at Series B, and ultimately four times as many unicorns, whatever that means these days. 
that's a deck of corns, I believe, with a trendy phrase. Unicorns aren't enough anymore. Okay. <laughs> uh, but Im- imagine the impact on job creation. Imagine the impact on social mobility. If, because a lot of that gap, by the way, is those underrepresented founders who can't find their way into the right place to have the right conversation with the right investor as easily. That is phenomenally exciting. I hope you enjoyed the first episode, Richard. Watch out for part two of our conversation, where we talk about funding gaps, indexing, creating passive investments, and how this may affect the venture capital market. As usual, you can get full show notes with links at harmonico.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast and all good podcast services and players or through the link in the show notes. If you like what you hear, then please give us a review with lots of stars on your favorite podcast app. We can be contacted at queries at harmonco.com. Thanks for listening. I will be back with the second part of this conversation next week.